Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. This evening's conversation and our full house tonight underscores the vital significance of language to all of us. Many of us are asking this question. In a time of global climate crisis, political falsehoods and voters' cynicism, how do we raise the standard of public conversation so that we can properly confront the urgent issues of today? Post-truth politics is now dominating global media, attention and political debates. From the White House to post-Brexit discussions and Australian politics, disinformation rules and is often amplified by the echo chambers generated by social media bubbles. Public discourse is progressively defined by disinformation, evasion, obfuscation and stonewalling. To what extent does this now ubiquitous distortion of public language shape our national identity and destiny? How do we re-establish public discourse based on facts, evidence and informed debate? This Sydney Ideas conversation between Don Watson and Benedetta Bravini will consider how post-truth, bullshit and management speak have both taken over and fundamentally undermined the quality of public discourse and policy making. Our special guest is of course Don Watson, one of Australia's finest and most acclaimed writers. Over the years, Don Watson has written on politics, politicians in Australia and in the US, sport, nature, history, culture, crimes against speech and military commemorations. At the heart of all his work is the belief that, as he says, and I quote, more than just about anything else, more even than free markets or lifestyle choices, in a civilised society, words matter. Don's awards are almost too many to mention, but I'll just note here that his recollections of a bleeding heart, Paul Keating, Prime Minister, won the Age Book of the Year and Nonfiction Prizes, the Brisbane Courier Mail Book of the Year, the National Biography Award, and the Australian Literary Studies Association's Book of the Year. Death Sentence, his best-selling book about the decay of public language, won the Australian Booksellers Association's Book of the Year. Watson's Dictionary of Weasel Words is also a bestseller. American Journeys and The Bush, Travels to the Heart of Australia, have each won numerous awards and found large and enthusiastic audiences. Don Watson isn't just a defender of public discourse. He has, as we all know, contributed to some of the most powerful and consequential words ever written to lift our national conversation. He crafted that most formidable and memorable of Australian political speeches, delivered by Keating at Redfern Park in 1992. A poll conducted by ABC Radio National in 2011 voted Redfern's speech the third most memorable speech of all time after Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Paul hated that. 
<laughs> we should have given him a mount. <laughs> um, Don's inter interlocutor this evening is Dr. Benedetta Bravini, another champion of public discourse. She is a senior lecturer in communication and media at the University of Sydney and visiting fellow at the Centre for Law, Justice and Journalism at City University London. She writes on The Guardian's Comment is Free and contributes to a number of print and web publications including Index of Censorship, Open Democracy and The Conversation. She's the, she is the author of Public Service Broadcasting Online, 2013, and editor of the acclaimed volume Beyond WikiLeaks, 2013. Her latest volumes are Carbon Capitalism and Communication, Confronting Climate Crisis by Palgrave Macmillan, 2017, and Climate Change in the Media, Peter Lang, 2018. Please join me in welcoming Don Watson and Benedetta Bravini. Thank you, Francis. So, Don, you are the most celebrated writer in Australian politics. You are also a political satirist, a political writer, obviously, but also an historian. And you've been writing for the last, uh, I know I shouldn't say this, 20 years on management speak and also the decline of public language. So for you, um, the idea of post-truth in public discourse should not come as a surprise. Um, we saw it in Brexit, we see constantly it in Trump um, discourses. We saw also on Australian debates on mining, for example. But this also coincides with, in my view, a great political and democratic crisis, a crisis of values. And uh, like if we look, for example, uh, you know, what's going to happen with Brexit and the UK leaving without a proper exit plan, if we look at what, um, you know, the speech um, last week by Donald Trump, um, the State of the Union uh, speech, probably one of the most divisive speech in the history of the State of the Union, um, that really turned from unity, in my view, to caravans. Uh, if we look at uh, the speeches currently given by Bolsonaro in Brazil, and if we look also at the current debate, um, now that the electoral race has started in Australia, where the Prime Minister is not even mentioning climate change, um, we might feel that actually uh, there is a crisis, a crisis of values, democratic values, and vision. So how did we reach this point? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think actually your question sums up one of the problems, that, it, that it's, I think there's a sense of exhaustion that you, <laughs> that you, it's, we are, and I, th I think people like Bolsonaro and Trump and uh, Boris Johnson and uh, to some extent our own new prime minister take advantage of our exhaustion. We can't be bothered holding them to account again and again. I mean, Trump realised that it just, if you just keep lying, it doesn't matter a damn. And sooner or later, I mean, what he does realise is that he just dominates the news. He is the whole show. You know, that, and, you know, when I open my bloody phone in the morning, there it is. It's covered in Trump and it's covered in a whole lot of things which I don't have the energy to take in and yet I find myself, you know, spending time tracking it through. And, you know, you have this man called 
Muller, um, who was meant to be, on behalf of the rest of the world, trying to find the truth. And he may never emerge. I don't know what's going to happen to him. Um, so the whole, you know, the, the political discourse is, I think, for people looking in through their phones, by and large, is, is, is like watching a, a, a sort of court case that is never going to end and in which the world is turned upside down. Um, I often think it is like a court. I mean, if you go into a court, it always seems to me the world is inverted in a court. What, what seems to be true is not quite true. Um, lawyers seem to be arguing cases which, if you're the defendant, you can't quite work out what it's got to do with you. All you know is you'll get the bill at the end. And, um, and that's how it now feels to me. Um, I watched some of Morrison's speech to the press club on Monday, and he told one enormous lie in the middle of that, which Michelle Grattan was the only one with sufficient provenance to recognise as a lie and could be bothered asking the question, which he simply brushed off. Oh, well, bang, gone. Um, it was an inconsequential lie, but a lie uttered by a prime minister or a public official a while ago was really consequential. It could bring you undone once and for all. Now it, is, it, it just passes quickly into the news, so it's out it's off the bottom of the screen, you know, it's no longer stupid, something else comes up. Now, you see, I could now wrap it on for another three hours on this, which, but I, I think everybody in this room probably does the same thing every day in one way or another, trying to figure out how you stop this and re-establish something resembling um, a discourse which a human being can comprehend and have some say in. Now, where did it start? I, I, it, it probably goes back to PR and many other things. In some ways it goes back, I mean, I think in some ways it goes back to the First World War when literature became largely ironic, um, when it was just too horrible to face reality. But that's too big a story and it would need a team of academics to pull it out and find out what actually happened. But, you know, in, in a way, David Foster Wallace was a, re, you know, was a rebuttal of that. You know, we can't just go on being ironic all the time. We have to sort of face up to truth. That's another tale. But if you take the, uh, the Iraq war as an example, that's when people started talking about a post-truth society. And that's also where your famous also quote on PowerPoint. Yeah. He loves PowerPoint, by the yeah. way. He has a fantastic quote that goes like this. Um, I think there are many enemies to speeches, and one of them is PowerPoint. So what was the... Yeah, well, I think PowerPoint is sort of, you know, it's like giving up on the sentence. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, we decided, uh, obviously, falsely, that, that, a, that a bullet point contained more truth. <laughs> but, of course, a bullet point lacks the essential of truth, and that's a verb. Um, you know, verbs keep you honest, decent verbs. Verbs have largely gone from everything, but... Um, it, it, there was, a, there was a decisive moment in, in the process which led us to go to war in Iraq with consequences which are still being played out at an enormous cost. Absolute, you know, I don't have to tell you what a disaster it was, but that, that went on the false assertion um, that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and the other one was that Iraq and Al-Qaeda were one and the same almost a sinister nexus, as Colin Powell called it, between Iraq and Al-Qaeda. There was no evidence for such a thing. But troops interviewed soon after they arrived in Iraq and after they had liberated Iraq and 
mission accomplished was spread across the world, said, well, uh, we've got rid of those Al-Qaeda bastards that you know, brought down the Trade Centre. Well, they, they hadn't. They went thinking that they were doing this. That was a big lie. But if you go back to the moment when Colin Powell went to the UN, he had some PowerPoint slides. And on the PowerPoint slides were pictures of Winnebago's. And he alleged that these Winnebago's were places where chemical weapons were made. And as the slides went up, went up, he said this. How do I know that? How do I know that they're weapons, they contain chemical weapons? He said, how can I say that? Let me give you a closer look. Click. Look at the image on the left. On the left is a close-up of one of the four chemical bunkers. The two arrows indicate the presence of sure signs that the bunkers are storing chemical weapons. Everyone goes, ooh, ooh, you know, they're two arrows. <laughs> they could be pointing at anything. They could be pointing at a rabbit or something. I mean, there's nothing, they're just pointing at a couple, but these are sure signs that they're chemical weapons. Now, when the world reaches that point that they actually think two arrows are proof of something like chemical weapons or anything else, then the world has turned upside down. I mean, no court in human history would have fallen for that. But half the world fell for it, and all of the United States fell for it, and so did the rest of the coalition of the willing, as it were. You come or else, basically. But, um, so it, it seems to me as good an example, as good a place as any to start, that we actually, you know, when you do that, you have given up on your um, logic, any sort of forensic instincts, anything else. I mean, you would have thought someone would have said, no, no, the arrows. If, if every time I draw an arrow, that's a sure sign of something at the end of it, I mean, we're gone, we've gone mad. So you think, why did this done, you think? Uh, do you think that we, become, we became completely anesthetized by decades of neoliberal language and discourses? Is this... Yeah, I think we did. I think, I think um, well, I think... Neoliberalism is another story. I mean, that's almost a, uh, you know, what the hell? Neoliberalism was, you know, um, was right-wing economics. I mean, how it becomes neoliberalism, who knows? What neo-anything really is a bit of a problem. But um, neoliberalism is really a return to a very simplified Adam Smith, as far as I can understand it, and the invisible hand and all this stuff. You know, the one part of Adam Smith which doesn't hold up was the part they got hold of. Um, and <laughs> I love it, you know, like when it all fell apart, the invisible hand was suddenly no longer there. And they had to put in some government hands full of money. That, that got the invisible hand back again. Um, well, but certainly management speak has something to do with it. Yeah, well, management, the management stuff is really... I think that's really at the core of it all, and trying to trace where management speak comes from is, is another story in itself, but it comes out of a great polyglot um, pile of, uh, you know, cod Freudianism, um, PR, um, advertising, Madison Avenue, um, and those weird things that went on in California, largely drug-induced, you know, people got into trying to remember the name of it. Um, I, I know that Donald Rumsfeld fell for it because he, he said things which were straight out of the founder's handbook. 
the term will come to me, but neo-linguistic programming, all sorts of things. Education departments took this sort of stuff up as well. So it just, it all comes together into what really um, becomes a kind of, you know, the, you know the management expression, we're all on the same page. You know, it sounds so lovely. Let's all be on the same page here. What it really means is it's a kind of, you know, it's a sort of Hitlerite notion that, you know, you will, you will acknowledge the values of the organisation, you will obey those values. Every, every action and every principle, everything we do is an expression of those values and they all lead to the same goals. So it's a mixture of sort of fascism, Fordism and a few other things. That get you. And in the name of diversity, they expect comp absolute compliance. It's a, and and this, it, it is really a, when the knowledge economy, so-called, you know, took on the characteristics of the pre-knowledge economy when we were all stupid um, and didn't know anything, um, it, it is, you know, the language really became the assembly line, the mechanism. And it was really, the idea was, and this is a very important point, I think the, the language of management shouldn't be thought of as only the language, it is the ideology, it's the f it, and it is the, f you know, it, it describes the function of it. The language is essential to making people do what they want them to do. So you don't want people thinking in metaphors when they're doing, when they're moving information. You don't want them running off with poetic fantasies. You don't want them thinking of, I wandered lonely as a cloud, you know, when they're actually sort of meant to be taking this piece of dead information to that person and exchanging it for another one or going to a meeting with it. What you want them to be saying is, you know, the challenges we face, you know, depend on our outcomes or our outputs or our inputs or God knows what. Um, and I, I can give you an example of where this becomes really most profound. Somebody sent me this. Where it said the notice went up in this office saying the Centrelink contact point for statistics, this is Centrelink, mind you, um, the Unemployment Bureau, it used to be known as, the Centrelink contact point for statistics, previously known as the Centrelink knowledge desk, is now known as the business intelligence front door. <laughs> <coughs> so you see the power of language. I mean, Stalin would have blushed, you know, that, that you could, you could, uh, one minute it's a desk, the next day you go in, it's a door, and it's just been done with language. It's exactly the same physical thing, mm -hmm. but it's gone from a desk to a door. And this is happening all over, businesses everywhere, there's that sort of profound thing. Uh, academics have something to answer for, you know. I, you know, I think there was, it's, it's as if a whole, um, well, I th let me put that another way, I don't blame the academic, I think universities, um, Universities somewhere along the way decided that the only thing that mattered was the future. The idea of the university as, the, as, as a defender of knowledge, as a defender of tradition and culture and the rest, when that went out the window, an awful lot went with it. And, and I mean, once if, if, if any outfit in the entire society should have been a defender of the language, it should have been the university but the universities took it on with great enthusiasm. They became, you know, great receptacles of management speak and management thinking. And if you read, you know, the average, well, I get two universities have sent me their business plan going forward. <laughs> and you see, once you take on a business plan, you can only go forward. Now, if anybody should have known 
that it's not the case that until going forward entered the language that people just milled about. <laughs> you know, they went backwards and forwards and around about. A university should have known that, and at least those that kept their history departments, you know, because <laughs> there would have been historians who could have said, no, no, people didn't just mill right up until 2010. They sometimes went forwards and they sometimes went in other directions. And did you um, find that these two universities were on the same page? They were. All the universities seemed to be on the same page. <laughs> and, and, and none of them, in, in their business plans or their vision statements or whatever, none of them talk about the, the, the traditional role of universities to, um, as, as receptacles of knowledge, as, 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 as places concerned with the provenance of human affairs and, and so on. That, that, that just got lost. And if you write to your average vice-chancellor saying, hang on, why are you telling me that my old university, La Trobe, you know, should have nothing to do with, the, it's completely irrelevant. Which is, what, which is why it becomes so ironic that they, they talk, it seems to me, I don't know much about it, but they, you know, that they want to, to run a course in Western civilization. It seems to me extraordinary seeing that we, all universities used to run courses in Western civilization. It was called philosophy and history and literature and classics and these sorts of things were about Western civilization. I don't know why um, you now have to have it. I do know why they want a special course for Western civilization, but that's another story. So, Don, uh, do you think uh, we know the power of language, of course, and we know that speeches, political speeches, can really define public discourses of a nation. But do you think that the political class realizes at the moment, for example, here in Australia, how relevant this power is? The power of... Defining yeah. discourse and the identity of a nation and the future and the agenda and the vision. Yeah, well, I think, I think politicians, proper politicians, have always instinctively understood that what you needed to do was control the narrative. You needed the numbers and the narrative. First the numbers and then you got the narrative. And you might get the numbers by having the narrative. Um, now, once that went beyond politicians and into political officers and the explosion of advisors and who were usually people who wanted to become politicians um, and had very little experience of anything other than politics. Um, and once they got themselves trained in opinion polling and and um, they became geniuses, really. The spread of geniuses is underestimated. <laughs> um, many of you will have seen, um, you know, remember um, Yes Minister, which is a show that it's I didn't, I wasn't so keen on when it first came, it just gets better and better and, you know, as the, as the images become grainier and grainier. But if you remember in the early episodes, there was a character in there who they all despised. The public servants who'd been to private schools despised them, the politician despised him, and he was the party operative. And, and eventually he was so unpopular they pushed him out of the show. But in reality, in politics, real politics, he came back and took over. You know, he's the Frank Luntz, he's the, he's the, uh, the heavyweight behind the scenes. He's the cynic, um, the person with no education that matters. Um, who, you know, he's the Philistine um, and he runs the show. He tells you how things work. And politicians everywhere are in his grip. And then the politicians became the same person. Tony Abbott was a political advisor. You know, Boris Johnson is a classic case, you know, of, of, of someone who 
um, it, it just makes a virtue of crassness. And, you know, you could probably trace it, a sort of natural historian might be able to see the, the, the progression of one type into another into another. What it means is that in a political office where there were very rarely any books anyway, there are now none at all. There were very few in the Keating office, maybe three. Um, that's one of the strange things about politics is that no one reads anything. But we saw, a, you know, a change of prime minister, a, a great rending of the governing party, largely, as far as we can tell, through what was coming out of the Sky News in the corner, which no one watches except politicians or people of a certain tribe. Um, so now, more and more, we're governed by whatever is coming from that screen in our own lives, and less and less from... Um, by considered and rational debate or any of debate which is in, in a sense... You know, they'll talk about values, but as a mantra, they won't think about them. I mean, value, when you see the word values now, I'll bet everyone here, it's one of the many words that when you see the word values, you think lies. <laughs> You'll skip the word, go on to the next sentence and hope there's something better there. So it's a bit like calling books uh, cultural externalities. Yes, yes, yes. I'm glad you raised that. If in case some of you have books with you, you should in future refer to them as cultural externalities. It <laughs> um, was actually used. That was the term used by the Australian Productivity Commission when they were, talk they were thinking about what to do with books. Yeah. It was impossible to think of them as books. No, they just couldn't get their head around a book. So they had to call them cultural externalities. And that's one of the attractions of this word. It's a sort of it's, it, it's like a cubby house. It's a bit like the Secret Seven and their password or something. You know, you've got to... You don't want anyone in here who's going to call books books. <laughs> that would make you just like everybody else. And you're the Productivity Commission. <laughs> you know something special. Hmm. So, Don, I have to ask you about the reference page. Do you? It was... <laughs> yes, because it was for sure the most important political speech ever given in Australia, and also one of the greatest, probably greatest relevance. I have actually a, a quote from it. And uh, it was the first time that it was acknowledged to indigenous Australians that European settlers were indeed responsible for all the difficulties of Aboriginal communities. So from the speech, we committed the murders, we took the children from the mothers, we practiced discrimination and exclusion. It was our ignorance, and our prejudice. So do you think that a statement like that would even be possible in the contempor contemporary environment we're living, considering also the way in which the Uluru statement has been dismissed recently? Uh, probably not. Um, partly because I don't think we've had a politician since Keating who would have said it. Um, and I should say this to make it clear, you know, there's, there's an absurd thing going on about whose speech it is. It's Keating's speech, you know. That's how it works. You hand over a speech, it becomes, he decides what he's going to use of it and what he's not going to use and that's, and it's, just, like I say, you know, if speechwriters got the credit for speeches that politicians give, then economic advisors should get the credit for recessions. <laughs> um, and, and generally they don't and they'll run a mile, you know. Um, um, so the, the whole thing is a lot of baloney of a 
sad kind in my view. But that's one reason that um, Paul never said anything he didn't believe, um, in public at least. And um, what he said, uh, that, who knows. But he believed it. I don't know. There was no one else in that government who would have said that. There was probably no one in our office. But no one else in our office saw the speech um, because it was written very late in the night. You uh, didn't, right? You weren't there either. No, no, I was actually pruning the wisteria at the time when <laughs> it was alleged I wrote the speech. And, um, but it was a... Um, no, it, it, it needed someone who believed it and who had the courage to say it and who didn't hesitate. I was saying a thing yesterday that I... Had I thought about it anymore, I probably wouldn't have said we. Had it been distributed in the office, I'm sure that people would have said, you can't say we. You should say European settlers, our forebears, or whatever, you know. Um, go for the literal truth or find some qualifier. Um, you know, I know uh, there was a backlash about that speech from all sorts of places. I mean, saying, how dare you say that we did it, we didn't do it. We shouldn't have to carry the guilt of the, the sins of the fathers and so on. Which I think is wrong. I think we just inevitably do. Whether we may as well face up to it. You know, I think psychologically speaking, it was right to call it we, and it would have weakened the the prose. You know, if you say our forebears or whatever. You know. Apart from that, apart from a few clumsy bits, I, I don't think anything should have been changed. And um, I think that. I think in some ways because it, it, it had a sort of... Um, I was very surprised that it had any effect at all. I, I, didn't, I didn't even go and watch. I thought it was... It must have been a low news day, but it had... Because it, it, in some ways it, it was obvious. You know, it, it's Australian history 1A. In, it, lots of it is. Um, but it had a, an immediate impact and then it flowed on and on. Um, and I think part of the effect of it was that it, it, there was nothing between the writing of it and the delivery of it, a few hours. Um, you know, you can write lots of speeches and lots of speeches are delivered and you think they're really terrific and they're saying something very profound and they don't get a mention. Even when you, your media advisor takes them upstairs and gets their journalists and says, look, there's that bit there, that's important. <laughs> Look, see, he's saying this here. Look. <laughs> um, yeah. Does that answer the question? Yeah. I can't remember what it was. No, I'm, th I'm thinking that possibly you need also more courageous politicians then. Yeah, I to think. Deliver. I think you do, and I think you need politicians. See, Paul was a very old fashioned politician in lots of ways. He wasn't cut out for modern politics. He was quite. You know, he was a sort of traditionalist. He hated the televising of Parliament, which seems strange, seeing he was such a performer. Mm -hmm. But he knew the moment they got the television cameras in there that question time would become the only thing that people want to watch. No one was ever going to watch a second reading speech or even report it. They wanted to see the clowning of question time, and he knew that question time would turn into this performance piece. And, you know, and Polly's would bring in lumps of coal or or flags, or they would, you know, hold up things and all this sort of stuff. Then you'd see these, you know, the imitations of Keating from 
people, you know. I mean, Peter Costello even sort of used to unbutton his coat and button it up again and do all that sort of stuff like a mirror image. Um, so, you know, he, he actually was a stickler for that sort of thing in the same way that he thought it was tragic when the Sydney Morning Herald, whenever the Sydney Morning Herald became less than the part of, you know, the newspaper of record that he felt it had to be. Um, which you'd have to say sometimes is when it didn't seem to agree with him that it was sort of <laughs> less than the party of the paper of record. And I, I think, you know, that I was terribly lucky to write for someone like Paul who had tremendous, you know, limitless courage and um, understood about writing that you need, to, if you're going to employ a writer, well then let him or her write and uh, you can always get rid of any bad ideas they come up with or any split infinitives for that matter. Um, I don't think that's been the case to anything like that extent since. I think, you know, that the geniuses would get hold of every speech and work out what was politically expedient at the time and, oh no, you mustn't say that now because we've got to save that up for some other time. And all the time they're draining the spontaneity out of everything. They're draining the courage out of everything and I think to a certain extent they're draining the truth out of everything which comes from a sort of genuineness of expression. So that's probably number seven in the list of things which are pulling truth out of the uh, political culture. Yeah, in moving from the political class to us, to the public, I want to read you a quote that I find very significant from Salina Zito from the New York Post. She now, she's now a famous journalist, uh, also because she was attacked uh, furiously online. So she said um, of Donald Trump, the press takes him literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Mm. I think that this is really crucial if we want to try to develop the kind of language that can counter post-truth, the kind of language that is actually based on facts and reasoning instead of being based on gut feelings. Yeah. So how can we find well, that sort of Yeah, response? well, I, I don't know quite specifically how you do it, but I mean, well, I know that we've seen in our own lifetimes a, a, a really profound change where the truth of what you said, even you know, we, we have a business about misleading parliament, which used to be a hanging offence and might still be in some cases. It still operates as a little bit of a, um, a, a sort of constraint on outright lying. The president's always had this ability to tell porkies. Um, but Trump, I mean, I think what's important to see is you know, Trump didn't drop from the sky, um, although he he, he affected that by arriving everywhere in his own helicopter um, with Trump written on it. Um, he, but Trump, I, I think Trump worked out things pretty well. He saw what Fox News was doing. He saw the way news was going and he figured out how, I mean, of all Steve Bannon did and a few other people. And that, that when, the, when the means of communication became so addled and all anybody wanted he realised that what mattered was what you saw, not what you heard. You know, that people listened to the news while jogging to work. They, they watched it on, a, on, a, um, on their treadmills in the gym. They, it was in a fl fl flickering in the corner of you know, the house. And that they weren't really taking in anything. 
Trump realised that, as he said at one point, you know, I could shoot someone dead in the, you know, in Fifth Avenue, and, and they'd still like me, um, and because they just liked him. And I, I'm not quite sure how what happened in the news media, the, the technological changes in the way that Murdoch figured that what people wanted was a brawl. So he really turned, he replaced roller derby and, and ringside with the wrestlers, you know, that people used to love watching. He, he turned politics into that kind of a competition for the, you know, just a bun fight. So you have three or four people, three or three or four talking heads shouting at each other and more news being supered along the bottom and something being replayed over and over again and he realised truth is nowhere in there. So all I've got to do is be one of those talking heads all the time or the super's got to be about me or I'm going to be the thing that, that's in the loop. And that's what they're going to, that's all that I need to do. And he realised that with Twitter all I need to do is get up and make the headline every day. The way to make the headline, truth, it doesn't come into it. Just so long as it's me. Which satisfies his psychological need to be the centre of everything in the most massive way. You know, we've all, we all know our own... We've all got our narcissist somewhere, you know, even down the street or at work or somewhere. Everyone knows a, a good narcissist, malignant or otherwise. But very few narcissists, narcissists have the pleasure of having the whole world looking at them 24 hours a day simply by uttering some bullshit, you know, in 45 characters or whatever it takes on Twitter. And that's what so Trump is massively, his narcissism is reinforced and it, it, it's, you know, insatiable, but it just, he can just keep feeding it. And yeah. we're all the mugs for it. I can't resist them. Like, and there are, you meet Americans who say, I refuse to watch him. I refuse to talk about him. We have dinner parties, we don't talk about him. Anyone who mentions him, they've got to leave. Or stand in the corner or something, you know. This is a, an immense power. He also understood the tribalisation of politics, which is another thing. I mean, once it's tribalised, then reason doesn't come into it, does it? You belong to this tribe. I always think there was that moment when someone threw a bomber a basketball in 2008 or something, and he was about 30 metres from the, from the ring, like way outside the three-point, and he, with his beautiful languid motion, he went boom, and it went straight through. And half of America said, isn't he fantastic, isn't he wonderful? And the other half said, the bastard. <laughs> that's what black people are like. They can throw rings, but they know, you know, that's, you know, even if they didn't say it, they knew. You know. And the, the country divided down those who thought, what an amazing thing to have done. And the other half thought, my God, it's coming, it's coming. We've got to stop them. It was a bit like the Jack Johnson fight in, you know, 1912 or something. It's very basic. And Trump knew exactly how to play it eight years later. Yeah, but at the same time, um, we certainly cannot um, think or believe that um, propaganda just started uh, in the last uh, decade. Right? No. I mean, and Machiavelli can help us understanding that. He was already arguing in the 16th century that the prince, I have a quote, can I read it? Those princes have considered keeping their word of little account and have known how to beguile men's mind by shrewdness and cunning. So isn't it on us? <coughs> Shouldn't we 
be able to spot like this type of language and therefore not be influenced by it instead of buying into it. So what's, what can be done? I don't know. I mean, I, this is, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. There, there are a, a, a huge number of cultural externalities being published all over the, <laughs> the United States and, and even here saying... On the same this, page. This is what, yeah, mm -hmm. they're all on the same page. And they're saying this is what happened. But no one is saying what the solution is, how to get it back onto some kind of level. There's always been chicanery and lying and, and all sorts of tricks in politics. Remember, America, you know, Johnson upped the ante in Vietnam massively over a lie, over the Gulf of Tonkin incident, so-called. The Americans lured Russia into Afghanistan with all sorts of tricks um, and lies. I mean, uh, that's... The world works, you know, the old, you know, Tammany Hall vote early and vote often, you know, we all know this sort of stuff went on. And plenty of politicians have, um, have told fibs. But I think what's different now is that we once felt that we were in a position to judge them on the truth of what they said. Now that itself has become a relative position. You know, well, that lies. You know, well, of course, that was, you know, there's 27 lies, but this one's told 16. And what can you believe anymore? I know I had people. In, I remember the place where I get my coffee. A very sensible man runs this cafe, and he came up to me in 2016. He said, "Do you know the the the, the, the Clintons are running an international pedophile ring?" <laughs> I said, oh, "I'm not a fan of Hillary, but I don't think she's doing that." Oh, I don't know she is. I just picked it up on the internet. Then I read that you know that was going out everywhere, whether it was by the Russians or by some other organisation, including the Republican Party. What it what it really says to you, and I think it goes back to what you said, is that is that the suggestibility of the public has sort of risen at the same rate as the lying has. You know that. That in the middle of an election, that sort of thing on the internet, you would think most people would say, "Oh, hang on," you know. But uh, a lot of people didn't, apparently. Um, and I, you know, I think that's the truth. I mean, you know, here is Washington, where whoops, is it, it didn't go in the water that time. No. <laughs> Talk about talking underwater, but um, the. Um, you know, there is Washington and then you go 30 miles west and you're in a land which is entirely different and where they believe all sorts of things which it's very hard for people um, like most of us, I suspect, if not all, to believe. I don't believe in the rapture. Maybe people here do. I find it hard to believe in the rapture. Um, I don't... I, I actually think evolution works. But you only need to go 30 miles west of um, Washington, and you're, even in Washington, I met a man who was, you know, behind the counter in the hotel, who told me that the world was created 7,252 years ago, and don't believe any of this stuff about evolution. Go 100 miles into the Appalachians, and they can't teach evolution. So if if that's your public. I mean, if America has a crisis, it's really not all the people coming in, it's the people who are already there. <laughs> it's, um, uh, it really is. You, if you, uh, 
there's nothing they won't believe, including the NRA. You can go all the way across America and I'll tell you again and again, guns don't kill people, people do. You think, yeah, but they, their guns help. I don't, you know, a knife is just as deadly as an AK-47 in the wrong hands. You say, no, it's not. There's this. You know. There is this, this great desire, I don't know whether Machiavelli wrote about it, but there is a great desire for people to believe something. Um, and they'll... And this is a world of mantras, and um, which you can be can be got out there in a flash, with any kind of supporting evidence, including such things as the Clintons are running an international pedophile ring. Mm. But that's a big, and the, the suggestibility of Americans is one of the. If they had a great campaign, much as they discovered in the 1950s when the Russians you know, suddenly went into space with Sputnik, they. They thought, my God, we're going to have to start teaching science again. We're going to have to do something about this. You know, physics matters. They're, they're almost at that point again. And what about climate science? Does it matter? Exactly. So you can say, in spite of all the evidence, you can persuade half the country that climate change is not happening, that the science is all wrong. Same here. I can lead you to the homes where people will say, why should we believe the scientists? And you say, well, have you got a plastic hip? I'm sure you had a plastic hip. Did you do that yourself? Did you carve that out of a piece of wood and put it in there? Do you use penicillin? You know, antibiotics? I know these people. <clears throat> They're very closely related to me. <laughs> um, Christmas is tough. <laughs> but I mean, we, we have to sort of take that into account that, you know, that, that it is playing on our, our own stupidity. Um, you have a, a large, an I mean, the Trump base is millions, I mean, a huge proportion of that Trump base believe that, 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 you know, that America, that, that, that Israel, I mean, I'm, 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 let's not go anywhere, but they believe that Israel is essential, I do too, as a matter of fact, but their reason for believing it is, is that it's foretold in the Bible and that the, the American embassy must be in Jerusalem because this will be the moment. The moment can't come, theologically speaking, unless the American embassy is in Jerusalem, if you know what I meant. No, this is not a good basis for a foreign policy, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> Whatever else might be the argument, that's not a good basis for it. That's a bit like, you know, PowerPoint. And an arrow is a, uh, a weapon of mass destruction. So Don, if I, I would like to close and then open to the public, but with a positive note. Well, it's not really positive because the starting point is that possibly we are in a place where we're supposed, obviously, to deliver education. And I'm using deliver, mm. which is management <laughs> speak again. Um, deliverable. And deliver cultural externalities. Um, <laughs> but don't you think that education 
can be the answer also for the US, also for the US public. Because I was really surprised when you told me, for example, that people in the Midwest that were completely reliant on welfare mm -hmm. didn't know when, where welfare was coming from. Didn't know it was the state mm. that was providing that welfare. And Trump, in the last uh, speech last week, again, talked about the specter of socialism that they have to fight against. Yeah. So can we start maybe also call things as they should be? And when we talk about welfare policy, maybe we can even talk about uh, social democracy? Yeah, well, I think that's the thing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it'll take a while, a bit like, you know, was it Joe and Lai and the French Revolution? It's too easy, early to tell whether it was a success. Um, <laughs> I think it'll take a while for us to work out quite what this whole neoliberal thing has, um, um, what deliverables it has delivered. Um, but I, I think it's given us Brexit and Boris Johnson, and that's a fairly horrible spectre. Um, and it's given us Trump to a large extent. More immediately, it's given us flat wages, which may actually be the thing that determines the next election. That's, it's funny how Paul and Bob never get any, no one ever says, you, you deregulated all these organisations. I mean, hang on. Isn't that the part? No, also no, the UK. Never, never go back that New Labour in the UK. It's the same new Labour in the UK, you know, yeah. New Labour plus David Cameron, away you go. But the thing about education is that when, when people always think education is the answer, they always have. And to a large extent, Education has been the answer, um, but it's never the whole answer. And I, I don't... It's a long-term answer as well. Yeah, well, but you see, when that's what worries me about the universities and the secondary education system and, and the rest. I mean, it, it, it has all become managerialized. I, I don't know whether how general it is, but I do know that I, I actually have two small children and the report comes home and I struggle to understand what it means. And I know other parents feel the same way and I know teachers hate writing these reports because they can't actually say what they would like to say about the child in their, you know, that they're trying to educate. They have to do it in somehow outcomes and whether they have achieved certain outcomes. And they would like to say Look, the kid's very shy and he needs, you know, a bit of extra encouragement or something like that, or he's, he's a rat bag and he, <laughs> he needs to be discouraged. What's um, the difference? <laughs> so that they can, um, look, can I give you, a, this is, it might sound like a weird observation, but you know how universities, uh, we won't pick on the university, organisations, no, let's go to the university. <laughs> universities, when they, they, they take, all, all sorts of organisations as their models, large corporations, you know, they get, um, you know, what's his name, uh, the black who did General Electric, Jack Welsh, you know, they, you know, from good to great, or Six Sigma, they get all these sorts of models of private corporations for their own model. You would think that the best model for a university would be a very successful university. You would think, you know, that would be one place. But you could go to another place. I mean, the most successful leader in the UK of the last 50 or 60 years, I would say, was Alex Ferguson. 
who made Manchester United the most extraordinary football club ever. Yeah. Alex, Ferguson, Alex Ferguson aligns with the left of the British Labour Party. That's where he says he comes from. He says, I'm a Scottish Labour person. And that's how I run the club. He says, I mean, it just goes through. You don't have to go to Jack Welsh or a management guru. You can actually go, you know, to John Knox and Robbie Burns and put them together and you get an Alex Ferguson. <laughs> a bit of Calvinism, a bit of romance, a bit of poetry, and you put together this extraordinary club. And he says, Ferguson says, what you need is, you know, you need hard-nosed character in your leader, someone who speaks common sense, and someone who recognises, you know, you're dealing with 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 entirely different individuals, all who have to be managed according to common sense principles and their needs. And then you get an outfit that really works. So I reckon Sydney University should get Alex Ferguson out here <laughs> and, and, and be the starting point for a, a whole new way of seeing how organisations can function. I mean, I'm sure Alex Ferguson's got some problems. He thought Gordon Brown was going to make a good Prime Minister, but that was just a bit of, a bit of Scottish, you know, um, solidarity. But I, I, I don't understand why private sector corporations should become the model for everything. That banks, you know, should they be? I mean, why? I mean, we've made, we've made these organisations not only immensely powerful, but we hold them up, you know, uh, look, I, I just, here's, you know how we talk about vision and values? You talk, I mean, I'm sure people talk about them in their kitchens now, you know? <laughs> Darling, I think your values are not properly aligned with the porridge, you know? Sort of <laughs> but here's a company with its vision and values, dedicated to making the intelligent connections needed to deliver innovative solutions to our customers. It's all very familiar. We're a company with a proud tradition of firsts, continuing to take part in making the world a safer place. Key to our business is our strategic vision and what the company employees value. We are innovating for a safer world. We will delight all our customers. There is a delight threshold in management speak. Hotel organisations talk about the delight threshold and not crossing it, which is very interesting in a hotel when you think about it. Well, you don't go over the delight, they should have it up on the wall. Anyway, that a company which is talking about making the world a safer place is BAE Systems, which is the largest manufacturer of guided missiles in, in the world. Making the world a safer place delighting all their customers. You have this picture, for some reason I have this picture of somewhere out in the desert, someone opening a big box and being really delighted, you know. Saying, <laughs> Look at that thing, you know. And they go on, not tolerating unethical behaviour by others, reporting unethical behaviour. BAE Systems is constantly before tribunals for unethical behaviour, for, for bribery and corruption of all kinds, like all the other you know, weapons manufacturers. But this is the most fantastic, and this is where I think it, it's really important. They become, it, you become stupid and you don't even know you've become stupid. You say really stupid things once you take on, you know, managerialism or neoliberalism or any of this stuff as your philosophy, as your guiding principles, instead of the ones that Machiavelli outlined. Mm -hmm. 
you become really stupid. So you say things like ensuring that our, this is called product stewardship, ensuring that our products are safe to use is a key responsibility. <laughs> you don't want it going off in your face, you know. You want to <laughs> we also need to make syst our systems as accurate as possible <laughs> and minimise the potential impact of our products on the environment. <laughs> You know, it's, which is like saying we want to hit the human, but we don't want to blow up his patch of petunias beside him, you know, can we just get him? And this is where it gets profound. It's a bit like, you know, turning the desk into a door. Lead used in ammunition can harm the environment and pose a risk to people. <laughs> so they're developing lead-free ammunition. So that when the missile hits you, at least you're not going to get lead poisoning, you know. <laughs> there have been concerns that the use of depleted uranium in weapons may cause harm. We stopped using depleted uranium. They've stopped using depleted uranium in our products, which is so typical, isn't it? You do it for as long as you can until somebody says, you can't go doing that. And they say, oh, stop. We're very ethical. <laughs> In 2003, the VA systems was investigated by Britain's uh, senior forward office, the Swiss federal prosecutor, um, uh, authorities in Austria, Tanzania, Romania, the Czech Republic and South Africa, but they're ethical to a fault. <laughs> there you are. Uh, okay, Is, if ever there was a sign that it's time to end this event, it's that we've crossed the threshold of delightfulness. <laughs> so, so thank you, Don, and thank you, Benedetta, and thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.